The previous episode of The Industry was a look at the unique world of movie novelizations. And while I was fortunate enough to speak to a number of great guests for that episode, I did feel that my talk with one of them, Alan Dean Foster, was wide-ranging and just great enough to release as its own episode. In my conversation with Alan, he talks about Star Wars, The Thing, The Black Hole, why he won't do another Alien movie, and the two-part Maud adaptation that never saw the light of day. So, this is me with Alan Dean Foster. Welcome to the industry. How often do you get asked about movie novelizations? Is, is this like a, a prime topic for you? Or is it like, eh, once in a while? Very occasionally, as far as a specific subject for an interview. It always comes up in a general interview, of which I get asked probably once every two or three weeks. But as far as the specific, making it the specific subject of the interview or the title of the interview, that doesn't happen very often. Oh, okay. Well, see, I'm I'm glad to kind of fit in my own little in my own little niche there. So yeah, how is it that you got started into novelizations? Because I know you were already a published author before novelization started for you. So how did that come about? There was a switchover in editorial at Ballantine Books, which then became Del Rey Books and still is Del Rey Books, science fiction line of Ballantine Random House. Uh, Betty and Ian Ballantine had left to do art books. And another husband and wife team, Lester Del Rey, Judy Lynn Del Rey came in. And among the things that editors find when they are promoted to general editorship or whatever their position is, are projects that have been left over from the previous regime. And one of these things was uh, the rights to do a book version of a movie from Italy called Luana. And uh, Judy Lynn knew that I had a, an MFA in film from UCLA. Plus, I had written some books. I'd, I'd done novels already for Ballantine. And she threw it at me and said... Uh, we got the rights to this Italian jungle film here. Would you be interested in trying to make a book out of it? And I said, sure. Uh, I like female Tars and stuff. I grew up watching Sheena, Queen of the Jungle. In fact, when we moved to Prescott, Irish McCalla, who played Sheena, Queen of the Jungle, was living here. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, <laughs> which I didn't know at the time, but I ran into her on a, ran into her on a street, Cortez Street, saw this really handsome older woman, much older woman. And uh, she went into a store. So I followed her in. When she left, I asked the owner, I said, was that Irish McCall? And he said, oh yeah, she lived here for years. And he turned and pointed, but these are some of her paintings. She was a member of the Western Artists of America, painted mostly Native American children. But that's what the book was ostensibly about. It was a female Tarzan story. So I said, sure. And Jidlin said, well, uh, what do you need? And I said, send me a copy of the screenplay. She said, well, we don't have a copy of the screenplay, but we'll set up a screening for you in Los Angeles. I was not married yet, and I'm still living in L.A. So I said, well, okay. So I went to the offices of the guy who had bought the distribution rights, Saul Freed, I think his name was, to the film, which was a third-floor walk-up. That told me something right away, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, MGM, it wasn't. And I went in and they had a little room set up with little chairs and projectionists. And the 
sat me down and I had a, a pad and a pen get ready to take notes. They started the film was all in Italian. Okay. And I don't speak, or at least I didn't then, any Italian. And there were no subtitles. So I'm watching this thing unspool. I have no screenplay. I'm trying to understand something of what's going on just from the context, realizing that I've committed myself to make a 70,000-word novel out of this thing. And it was atrocious. <laughs> it was awful. It encapsulated all the worst aspects of Italian filmmaking. <laughs> Bad Italian filmmaking. So I went home and I thought, what am I going to do? Well, Freed's young PR advertising guy was a fan. Mm -hmm. Not of me, but he was a fan, science fiction fantasy. And he'd have the good sense to hire Frank Frazetta to do two advertising posters for the film, both of which appear on the book, one on the cover and one on the back cover. Uh, the one on the back cover is a rough. And I thought, well... That's my idea of a female Tarzan, what Frazetta would do. So I ended up novelizing the film poster. Oh, wow. So which is why the book, why the book is dedicated to Frazetta. And that's how I got started doing novelizations. Oh, my goodness. How well was that received? That, did that boost you in, into doing other ones? Well, I don't know if it, oh, well, I got more work after that. Yeah. Judy Lynn had bought the rights to do the book versions of the animated Star Trek. And she asked me to do those, do anything I want, she said. That's a whole other story, which I'm sure you'll get to. I did John Carpenter's Dark Star, which was John Carpenter and Dan O'Bannon's first film. Actually, their USC film project, which kind of got bigger and bigger. As far as boosting my career, uh, I don't think it did anything for that. But the book itself, as a book, was well-received. And in fact, not long after the book came out, Judy Lynn got a call from somebody at Disney who obviously hadn't read the fine print on the book, wanting to know if the film rights were available. <laughs> so fantastic. Judy Lynn and I had a good laugh and cry. That's fantastic. That oh, yeah, I bet. Okay. I, I do want to ask you about one of your early ones, something that I know has not been published, but it it's something that fascinates me that it exists, and that is the Maud two-episode tie-in. I remember watching these episodes in syndication, so I know, I remember watching when Maude had, had the, the very difficult abortion decision, that two-episode thing. How did that come about? What was the deal with this? Well, I'd done a lot of novelizations for Del Rey by that time, uh, all of the ones I mentioned already. And Random House or, Mal or Del Rey probably Random House, because it wasn't science fiction, had bought the rights to do a book version of that two-part episode of Maud. Maud has an abortion. And they tried different writers. Uh, I know Terry Southern had a crack at it. Guy wrote Candy. Buck Henry took a shot at it. I know. And they were all rejected. And so it came to Judy Lynn, and she threw it at me. She said, you want to take a crack at this? Well, first I saw who had already done a try on it. I thought, look, if these guys couldn't do it, why are you asking me? But I did. And I wrote the book, turned it in. Uh, Ballantyne, Random House, whoever was responsible for it, accepted it. The manuscript was approved, and then it was declined. And the story I got years later was that uh, Norman Lear had turned it down, and put the kibosh on the whole project. 
not necessarily because of my writing or the manuscript itself. I have no idea why he did it. I've never met Norman Lear or I'd ask him. But and that may not even be true. Right. That's the story behind that. That's the only novelization I've ever written that's never been published. It's a very odd choice for a novelization is, is, yes, what it, it is. is what it seemed like. Like we, at the time that you got that project, did you think, what, why, why are we doing this two part Maud episode? Well, of course that was, that's everybody's initial reaction. Okay. But then you think about it. It was so controversial at the time mm. and there was so much talk and noise around it that whoever bought the rights and thought we could do it, thought they could do a book out of it probably figured that all of the conversation around the episode would serve to sell the book. I mean, that's the way I would look at it. But uh, for the reasons I mentioned, Mr. Lear or whoever decided not to do it. The manuscript still exists. It's with all my other manuscripts in the Special Collections Department of Arizona State University in Tempe. And presumably somebody could publish it. But all of that discussion has kind of gone by the wayside, mm. although abortion is just as controversial a subject as it ever was. It would be very interesting to see if a small press, a specialty press, maybe a woman's press, special press specializing in women's issues, I don't know, could get the rights to do it and put out even a limited edition of the book. Because I'm quite proud of the work I did, just like everything else I did. <laughs> That's I would I honestly I would love to read that one. Like if if I'm picking one, I might go to that one first cuz it's just such um such an unusual, you know, it, it it definitely sticks out among the the bibliography that I've been looking at. So, what is your process when you're working on a novelization? So, how much time do you have? How how hard is the deadline that you're given? Uh are are they just handing you a screenplay and say, "Here you go." Do you ever, all right, one thing I always wonder is, do you ever get to talk to the screenwriter if you're reading a screenplay and you go, I don't understand this. This is vague. I don't know what's going on here because the novel is such a, a different animal than, than the screenplay. Okay, several things. First of all, you have no time. They want it yesterday. This is because the studios, uh, in you know, somebody doesn't seem to realize that it takes longer to put out a printed book than it does to release a film. Film's already done, generally, or in progress. Um, so they want it yesterday. The deadline is almost always hard. There are exceptions. But by exceptions, I mean, well, we'll give you another week. That kind of exception. Yes. What I do is, what I used to do, is I would have typewriter, now computer, here. Here, I'm pointing, nobody can see me. Uh, in front of me. And then to my left on a stand, I would have the screenplay. And I learned very early on that I generally need to get three pages of manuscript from one page of screenplay, mm. assuming it's a standard 120-page screenplay. That will translate, I know from experience, to 360 pages of text, which will be around 65,000, 70,000 words with the font I used. If it's a shorter screenplay, I know I need to get more pages per page of screenplay. That sounds very technical, and uh, I know, but you have to have this in your mind when you start. 
or you'll get to page 20 in the screenplay and realize you only have 30 pages of book and there's no way you're going to end up with a book. So you have that in mind. You have to expand as you go. Now, a couple of the last films that I novelized, take the two Star, Star Trek films, for example, I was actually able to put the screenplay up on one side of my screen because it was emailed and the movie itself on the left side and unspool the film as I was reading the screenplay. Oh, well, that's very cool. Yeah, then I would put the screenplay, take a printed version of screenplay, put it off to the left, have my manuscript up there, switch them all around. So I'd have three different things up at any one time. The screenplay, my manuscript, and the film itself. But they're very careful with sending anybody the film. Not everybody will do that. So they sent it in seven parts, uh, one of them anyway. And when I was finished with part one, I had to eliminate it from my computer. Then they would send me part two. <laughs> wow. I mean, this is, they're talking <laughs> CIA level encryption. And, but I understand that. I understand that. Uh, and it didn't bother me. As long as I have the screenplay to work with, I'm fine. If I can get pre-production drawings, mm-hmm. if I can get particularly shots from the set, so I see what the actual uh, backgrounds look like or, or weapons or machines. And, of course, the actors, which who I want to describe accurately in the book, so that when you're reading about uh, Captain Johnston, who is a six-foot-tall uh, black man with an American accent, I don't write Captain Johnston as a three-foot, six-inch-tall Nordic dwarf. You know, you, people want these things to correlate. <laughs> when they're reading the book. So that's helpful. Sometimes I get a little more. Sometimes I get a little less. With Alien Covenant, I had a fair amount of material. Mm-hmm. With Star Wars, I had very little. And so when you have very little, do you do you end up just kind of creating like your own world or do you end up just being as vague as the screenplay because maybe you don't want to venture too far off? Like how much leeway do you have to, to go in your own direction, especially considering that you, sir, are an accomplished author on your own. You're not simply a, a transcriber. I have a lot of leeway. I assume when I start that I have a lot of leeway. If there's something wrong, I know that it will be corrected or taken out or it will be they will ask me to revise it to conform to whatever the finished film is. Uh, for example, the thing, novelization of the thing. All I had was the screenplay. I had no production drawings or anything, and it wasn't even the finished, it wasn't even the final draft of the screenplay, which is why there are a number of things in the novelization that are different from the finished film, uh, particularly the ending, which is actually better in the version that I was able to novelize, uh, not because John Carpenter thought it was better necessarily, but they're running out of money is the way I heard it. And the ending in the version I had the screenplay I had would have been much more expensive to shoot. I do have a lot of uh, a lot of leeway, particularly now that people know people at publisher of the studio know that I know what I'm doing, <laughs> and that they're they're going to get a, a proper novel. All right, so so tell me what was the ending of the thing, because I don't know. Oh, you need to read the book. Uh, <laughs> I had a feeling you were going to say that. No. <laughs> There's a huge battle between, I think the character's name is McCready. Yes. And the thing, and McCready has a bulldozer. Uh-huh. And it's, it's a, a, out on the ice in Antarctica. 
It's uh, very impressive. It's very well written by Bill Lancaster. And it would have made a nice ending, but it, was, it would have been extremely expensive to shoot. There's no CGI back then. And uh, yeah. it, it, practical effects would have been expensive to shoot. So that's why the difference. But I generally have a lot of leeway. But it doesn't matter if I do or not. I'm going to write what I think is the best story mm-hmm. using the materials that I've been given. And if something is taken out or they ask me to cut it, I have to do that because it's a work for hire. It's not my original material. Yeah. When you get something, and, and we don't have to name any films, but when you get something and maybe it's not such a good screenplay, is now the work a little harder for you just in terms of one, getting through it, or two, not wanting to alter it as much as maybe you would like to because all of a sudden maybe you'd make it completely different. So what is it like when, when it's, it's a situation like that where, you're, where you recognize this probably isn't that great? I do the best I can with what I'm given, bearing in mind that I can only deviate so much. I think I've developed a certain feel for what I can get away with is another way of saying it. Yes. Uh, because if I go off on a tangent, even to fix something that I think is bad, Krull is a good example. It's a very pretty film with good people in it, but the people who made it could not decide whether they were making a science fiction film or a fantasy film. I'll give you an example. There's a big battle there between the beasts, bad guys, his minions. You never know where all these minions come from. I mean, Every film seems to have lots of evil minions. Anyway, (laughs) and there's a big sword fight, and they're fighting with these things that look like pikes, long, and they stab and slash, and the good guys have swords and axes. And then at the end of the fight, the beast's minions turn their weapons around and shoot laser beams out of them. So I'm sitting there, I'm reading this description, because I haven't seen the film, of course, and I'm thinking, well, like any reasonable science fiction fan would do, Why didn't they shoot with the laser beams in the first place? I mean, is this some kind of Olympic event on the beast's home planet where they have to fight with with edged weapons first? So there's no way to fix that without going directly against what appears in the film. Mm -hmm. So I just wrote it as best I could. I forget what kind of excuse I throw threw in there. I always throw in an excuse. Have you had situations with studios where they've looked at what you've written and they said, no, you have to do this again. There's, there's, we don't like this, or you, you didn't do it right, or you've changed too much, or something. Like, if, you, if you've gotten one back where you had to do, like, do a revision, do it again. Only one time. Do I have done the... I'm going to tell ah, you. All right. I have do, done the novelization of Alien. I did the novelization of Aliens. Mm-hmm. And so they handed me the novelization, or the the screenplay to do the novelization of alien three. Mm-hmm. And I read it and uh, started mentally marking what I thought were the bad things in the screenplay. And that list got really long, really fast. There were a lot of bad things in that screenplay that I did not agree with uh, the story. Now everybody knows David Fincher's first film as a director, constant interference from various sources at the studios And it ended up being a hot mess is the best way to describe it. So I wrote it the way I would do any novelization, trying to fix these things as I went along. Just to give you one example, the most most obvious example is the beginning of the film, uh, the little girl, Newt, who escapes from aliens, 
dies. She's dead. And then they do an autopsy on her, which was the word I used was obscene. Uh, and the other guy who gets away from aliens uh, with Newton Ripley also dies. Michael Bean's character, I think yeah. it was. Yeah. Bain's There's no reason for that. So I fixed that. They left that alone. But there was a bunch of other stuff in there. And what happened was we got a letter from Walter Hill, one of the producers, or Warner did. I didn't. And Warner forwarded it to me saying, basically, and I'm paraphrasing, this was a long time ago. Sure. Uh, you can't do this. You have to write the book exactly as the film is written. So I threw up my hands. Again, it's a work for hire. And I went back and I changed many things. I had written backgrounds for all of those prisoners on that prison planet. I take a lot of that stuff out. Uh, I, I did not take out uh, the fix for Newt and uh, Michael Bain's character's death. I wouldn't do that. I, they left that in. But when they asked me to do Alien Resurrection, yeah. the book version, I said no. And, and funny, they, uh, they hired A.C. Crispin, well-known writer, and I got a letter out of the blue sometime later after I'd already forgotten about all this and put it aside. Uh, and the letter said simply, Alan, why didn't you tell me? <laughs> so it, it was an ongoing yeah. thing. I, certain things, uh, just one more example. Yeah. There's a scene in there where I think it's, it's Ripley and one other character are going through this mountain of used batteries, trying to find some batteries with some juice in them for their flashlights, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting there thinking, what is this, 22nd, 23rd, 24th century? They're still using D-cells. Yeah. Stuff like that drives me nuts because it's easy to fix and there's no reason for it. <laughs> so that's, that's the only example. It's the only time I've had to go back and do that much work. Now, with Terminator Salvation, I did rewrite a great deal of that, but that's because the movie people kept sending Titan Publishers, the publisher of the book, constant revisions in the screenplay that were being constantly revised in the film. And I got one after I had turned in my last draft mm -hmm. of the manuscript and had it accepted and been paid. My, and they said, can you please go back and just do a couple of little things so that the book will accord more perfectly with the film? And there were huge changes that had been made at the last minute in the film. And I thought about it. And I went back and I basically went through the whole manuscript and rewrote the whole thing. Not every word, but tried to incorporate every change that they had sent at the last minute. Because I still have my name on the book, even though it's not my original work. Mm -hmm. And I did that for the reader. I did that for the fans. Because I wanted the book to accord with the final version of the film as closely as I possibly could. I did that over a weekend. That was a very busy weekend. Wow. Wow. See, this is this is some dedication that you have to the craft is what I'm learning here, Alan. This is not just work well, for hire. Got my name on it. Somebody's going to go out and shell out seven or eight or nine bucks for mm -hmm. a paperback book. They should get the best book possible. It's just like when I was working on the novelization of The Black Hole, another film that I thought could have used some tweaks here and there. That's the favorite word in the movie industry, tweak. Just needs a little tweak. So when I was getting near the end of the novelization, I put together a list of 75 things that I thought could be adjusted in post. 
In other words, after the, if you know what post means, after all the live action shooting had been done, I never heard a word about it, forgot about it, figured it had been ignored, like all such things generally are in Hollywood. And sometime later, I was having lunch with somebody who knew people at Disney, and I mentioned this to him, because I know he had done work at Disney, he said, oh, no, said they had a big meeting about it, and people were yelling and screaming, and none of the suggestions were adopted. But at least I know that my, my fan work, my free work, that any fan would do right. just to make a better movie, at least people saw it, so nobody can say that I didn't try. I got to say, that, that does sound like a long list of things for the black hole, which... Having seen the black hole, I understand this list. I, having not seen it, I understand this list. Uh, now, you mentioned the fans a lot, and that's something that I really am curious about when it comes to your work, because a lot of what you end up doing, a lot of genre work, Star Wars, Star Trek, Alien, legions of fans who really care about this material, and... Whereas probably when you're first starting doing this, your interactions with fans is not quite as what it's, I'm going to guess, become over time because it's easier to now to get to you, yeah. right? So what's it like with dealing with fan interactions? Do, do you have a lot? Do people tell you, hey, this was wrong. Why did you do this? This guy's supposed to have, you know, an elongated uh, fingernail on his pinky. You didn't mention that. Things like that. What's the fan interaction like for you? Uh, I still get a lot of emails along those lines, but I think people have become more sophisticated and they realize that the person who writes the film adaptation, the book adaptation of the film is not responsible for what's in the film. Uh, but I do still get, still get uh, emails. I used to get printed letters. I still get emails like that all the time asking about, you know, why this was, done a certain way. Well, a good example, it's not a novelization, but Splinter the Mind's Eye. I was going to ask you about this anyway, so sure, go ahead. It's uh, why are Luke and Leia like this, their brother and sister? That, of course, is the big one. Why There's a little romantic frisson in Splinter the Mind's Eye, because at that point, George, frankly, uh, as far as I know, had not decided that Luke and Leia were brother and sister. And in fact, there's a famous cut scene from The Empire Strikes Back where Princess Leia gives Luke a non-brotherly kiss as Han looks on. It's in all the histories, and you can look it up and see it. I, so I think that decision must have been made uh, during the production of that film. I don't know this for fact. I'm just supposing. But certainly at the time Splinter was done, there was no indication that they were anything uh, like brother and sister. So there is that little spark, that little interaction between the two of them. And fans would write in and say, well, how can you do this? This feels weird. And I have to say, well, it didn't feel weird 50 years ago. You know, a lot of things didn't feel as weird 50 years ago as they do now. But when you get somebody who was born 30 years after the film came out mm -hmm. and they start asking you questions like that. So I'm, I try to be as polite and diplomatic as possible. I understand people don't understand these things. <coughs> And I answer to the best of my ability. And sometimes I simply say, well, I don't know. You'll have to write the studio. <laughs> so 
Tell me a little bit about the Star Wars process, because I know you, you I guess it's officially that you ghost wrote the Star Wars uh, first novelization and, and then contracted for Splinter afterwards. So, well, sort of. OK, please educate me, sir. It was a two book contract. The idea being uh, to, well, to write the book version of the film and to write a sequel novel. And the only restriction that was put on me with the sequel novel, and I could do anything I want, which I did, was that it had to be filmable on a low budget. George's idea with contracting for a sequel novel was, one, to have more Star Wars material out there until he could put out another film, which he would hopefully be able to do. And two, if the first film was not a huge success or a complete failure, and he wanted to make a sequel film, he wanted to be able to reuse as many of the props and costumes and technical stuff as he could because he would have a much lower budget. So he's thinking ahead there. So it was a two-book contract. And, of course, Splinter was finished before Star Wars came out. Oh, wow. It was six months, as you know, between the time the novelization came out and the film was released. And I, all of that. How was the difference in uh, do you, do the difference in sales in between that time? Between when the, the, the novelization first comes out and then after the movie. Are you aware? Are you talking, you're talking about Star Wars? Yes. Oh, the book went nuts. Nobody, it was just like the film went nuts. Nobody could believe anything connected with this Star Wars phenomenon. So when the film came, the book went crazy. It came out six months before the film. And there was obviously something there. Word got around very quickly. Wait a minute. This is real science fiction or preferable term science fantasy. Everybody said science fiction. This is going to be on the screen. I can't believe this. You have to read this. And people would tell their friends and neighbors and everybody else, you have to read this if this, this is going to be on the screen. I felt the same thing when I was writing the novelization. I thought, they're never going to get this on the screen the way it's written. Really? Of course. I bet. But, sure. but if they do... It's going to be something else. And in addition, it's being, uh, being able to go to a cast and crew screening of the film. Mm -hmm. I went to the first public screening of the film. I think it was 10 in the, 10 in the morning at Grauman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood. And I sat in the back of the theater and watched the audience. And when the Star Cruiser came over, the audience went nuts. It was the first time in my life I ever heard a round of spontaneous applause practically before the movie had even gotten started. And at that point, I knew this is going to be something extra special. <laughs> when you saw that, right, you see this reaction, you say, okay, this thing is going to be huge. Are, when do you start thinking about how that's going to affect your other work with Splinter? Well, it didn't. Um, I had already written Splinter before the film came out. But I, I mean, in terms of that would have been the next sequel if Star Wars maybe is not so Oh, that? Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, once the film came out and suddenly started making a dollar or two, mm -hmm. it became clear to everybody concerned that George could make anything he wanted to. And he obviously, I'm sure, had other ideas in mind while I was writing Splinter that were expensive to do. And in fact, Splinter, the original manuscript, opens, there's a whole chapter at the beginning, which opens with a fairly complicated battle in space. 
which explains why Luke and Leia are forced down on Mimban, this jungle planet. And George said, you need to take that out because it would have been too expensive to film. Not because there was anything intrinsically wrong with it. Right. So actually, Splinter starts with chapter two, basically. Mm, okay, gotcha. Um, having that experience of watching Star Wars after you've done the novelization. So I'm just curious about what it's like for you, uh, you know, when you get a screenplay and you don't have a movie. And all right, now you're going to work with it however long it takes you to, to write a book. And then to watch the movie afterwards. Like, what is that like? That must be sort of a, a I can't even imagine what that experience is like. It's got to be sort of a, an odd feeling when it's like, oh, well, this is what they did with it. It's cool. And sometimes it's disappointing. I don't want to say heartbreaking because it's a work for hire. Mm -hmm. But let's say I've written a scene that I'm really proud of in the book that's not in the movie. Yeah. And oh. that part of the movie comes along. And I know that scene's not there, but mentally I'm thinking this is what goes there in the film. I'll give you a good example. Yeah. Uh, the Force Awakens. Sure. I had finished the book, turned it in, and we, I mean, my agent, my editor, got a note from the Star Wars group. There's now, of course, a Star Wars group saying, look, we have this problem our rogue pilot is forced down on this planet, desert planet, and his ship crashes, and we don't see him anymore until much later. He's back with the resistance again. What happened? How did he survive the crash? We know how John Boyega's character survived it, walked away from it. But we don't see, give me a name, is it is it Poe? I'm no, I don't yes, know. Of course it's it po. is Poe. Okay, of course I, it's po. sorry. <laughs> so the ship crashes. Sorry, Boyega, Boyega walks away from it, and we don't see Poe until sometime later in the film when he's back with the resistance. Yeah, and this was this was egregious enough to where it was caught, and we got a letter saying, "Can you fill in something there explaining what happened to Poe after a ship crashes?" So I wrote a whole scene in there. Well, a whole sequence in there where he's he's dazed and he goes the opposite direction from John Boyega. Yeah. And he's picked up by a local, um, I forget, merchant or something, and they have to fight off some some bad guys. And that's why the merchant helps him get back to uh, contact with resistance people. And that's how he gets back. So as I'm watching the film, I'm thinking, well, this would have been great if they could have filmed this sequence. It's a oh, very yeah. exciting sequence. Oh, yeah. And it just wasn't there. But in my mind, it was there. <laughs> and then people who read the book, it was there. I'll tell you the most, yeah. most fun I had with that book. Yeah. One of the most enjoyable things I did in any novelization. We, of course, have that um, absurd scientific sequence in there where you have this super weapon and it's on a planet and it blows up in another soul. It blows up an entire solar system. Okay, right? yeah, yes, yes, I remember this. Okay, I realize this is science fantasy, mm -hmm. but that's it's really pushing the bounds of anything with the word science in it. So I said, even though I did not have to do this, could have written it exactly as it was in the screenplay, exactly as it appeared on the screen. I said, I'm going to make this work. So I took the t I started doing some research, physics, astrophysics. How would you go about theoretically? utilizing what we know 
blowing up a planet in another solar system. How would you do it without blowing up the planet that your weapon is supposedly on for all sorts of reasons? Uh, because if you have enough, if you have, have enough science to bring uh, energy down from the sun, you have enough energy to, you don't need this is what it is. Or plus if firing the weapon would immediately blow all the atmosphere off the planet. The weapon is mounted on and everybody and everything on that planet would die. Little things like that. Yeah. So I started getting into things like quintessence and really abstruse astrophysical terminology. And there's about four pages of it in the book that explains how it works, utilizes dark energy. I just thought that was fun. Dark side, dark energy. Sure. Um, so it's a whole different thing. Would have been really nice to see filmed, actually. Maybe one of these days some fans out there who are using some good Macs will actually do it. But I did the best I could with the physics I could understand. It's about four pages, and I was sure they'd take it out. I was sure they'd take it out of the book. They left it in. And I think the only reason they left it in was because they figured, nobody's going to understand what he's talking about here anyway. <laughs> so there's no harm done. But I'm real proud of that four pages. <laughs> Do you have any particular novelizations that you are proud of? Like, I really nailed this one. Uh, you know, maybe more than others. Well, I'm proud of all of them, but, if, you know, people ask that question. Mm -hmm. If I had to pick one, it would be Alien. Because there's not a lot of action in the sense of, well, we're not blowing up other spaceships or cities on planetary surfaces. It's very claustrophobic. You don't have dozens of characters. And the main thing was, when I got the packet, uh, no internet back then, from 20th Century Fox, Containing materials, it had pictures of the main characters, had picture the, pictures of the Nostromo, but there was something missing. So I called Fox, my contact at Fox, and I said, somebody left out pictures of the alien. And he said, well, we're not letting any images of the alien out. I said, well, I'm not out. I'm writing the book. I have to know what the alien looks like to write about it. He said, I'm, I'm really sorry, but Fox is not letting any images of the alien out. So I had to write the book without knowing, not having a clue what the alien looked like. Uh, so I'm pretty proud of the fact that that works as well as it does. Nobody had ever heard of H.R. Giger, of course. I didn't even know who he was or associated with the film. So if you read the book, there's no description of the alien and alien. So it just, the alien appears and like that, there's no... I tried to be as Lovecraftian as possible about it. You know, you have the nameless gibbering horror sort of thing, and you uh, you exercise your use of adjectives, but there's no nouns. <laughs> Sometimes you got to do what you got to do, I guess. That's right. So I was real proud of that. All right. So is this a lucrative business to be in? No, it's not. Oh. It never it never was. I probably did better than a lot of people, but. It was good for me from a financial standpoint, since you ask, mm -hmm. because I'm a very fast writer. So if it had taken me six months, even if I'd been given six months to write a novelization, I couldn't have done it. It wouldn't have, it wouldn't have made sense from a financial standpoint. But being able to write it in, well, Alien I did in three weeks, for example. Oh, wow. Being able to write, write the book in, say, three to six weeks 
that made it financially worthwhile. Is is that a typical deadline, three to six weeks? Or you're just that fast? I don't know what a typical deadline is. I only know what my deadlines were. Oh, okay. So uh, a, uh, a typical deadline for you, was it around three to six weeks? Was it something like that? Not a lot of time. Generally be two months. Two months. Okay. All right. So, you know, two to three months sometimes, but uh, I, if I, if it was... If I knew I could do it in two months, I'd ask for three months just in case, you know, some some crazy old lady hit me with her bus or something and uh, I was laid up for a while. You le- you let yourself have as much leeway as possible for those unforeseen uh, interruptions. Mm. So my my I think this is my last question for you, by the way. So has novelizations positively affected your original work as an author like maybe having the name recognition out there or maybe it hasn't affected it at all no there's certainly a lot of people who would never pick up an original science fiction novel who would pick up a novelization of a science fiction or a fantasy film because they liked the film and they wanted more of it now there's less of it these days because nowadays people have dvds or they stream and there's director's cuts uh, what I was doing essentially for decades was my own director's cuts, adding material and fixing things, just like any fan would do when they see a film. Be sitting in the theater, going, "Well, you know, that's all wrong. That color scheme is all wrong back there. Fans do all that, or it doesn't match the previous shot." Fans are very sophisticated anymore. You can't fool you can't fool science fiction fans anymore, uh, but. The name recognition certainly didn't hurt. It didn't hurt the sales of my original books. It probably hurt the critical opinion of my work. There's just, there's no getting around it. Uh, There's no question that a lot of people say, would say, or said, I had it said to me that, uh, you know, you're a real good writer, but he's the guy who writes those movie novelizations. And I just throw up my hands. And what I would tell people is, well, you, you take a book like Ben-Hur and you have two guys make a screenplay out of it, out of this huge best-selling book, and they get Academy Awards for adapted screenplay. But there's no reverse of that. Nobody uh, takes a novelization, which is much harder to write a novelization of a screenplay than it is to get a screenplay out of a book and say, this is a great work of literature. And I'm not claiming it is. I'm just saying it doesn't make any sense that it's all one way and all one way or the other. And I've always felt that way. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Industry presented by Movie Maker. Visit moviemaker.com for more great podcasts, articles, and information about movies. If you love movies, want to make them, or you're a movie maker yourself, then there's something for you at moviemaker.com. This episode was hosted and edited by me, Dan Delgado, Special thanks to my guest, Alan Dean Foster. You can find more from Alan at his website, alandeanfoster.com. Music in this episode is from Epidemic Sound. There is a transcript and links to any and all sources used for this episode and anything else that I think is relevant at my website, industrypodcast.org. And while you're there, you can leave me a voice message. And if you're inclined to do so, there's even a link for you to buy me a coffee. If you enjoyed this podcast, feel free to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you can leave a review. And if you'd like to contact me, you can. 
You can email me, dan at moviemaker.com. I'm also on Twitter at the industry 13 Instagram at industry underscore podcast, and Facebook at The Industry Pod. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back again soon with another story of the things that went on in the industry. Be good.